Plum Creek Church, my friends, church family members, how are you guys doing? I hope you're having an incredible uh, weekend. Uh, if you're with us, visiting with us, maybe new here, we are in a sermon series. This is actually week four, and it's titled Insurmountable. And I'm super excited when I got the call from Doug and he asked me if I would play a part in this series. And then more importantly, he started telling me the heart behind the series. I started getting really excited because come on, I don't have to tell you this, but let me just remind you, we are in some insurmountable times nationally, globally, church-wise, uh, personally. And when Doug got a hold of me and was talking to me about the heart behind this series, he said, man, I'm having Chad so many pastoral conversations with people in our church and people in our church are getting hit right now. Like relationally, economically, the, the, the mental health spectrum right now is, is heading in the wrong direction for so many of us with anxiety and fear and depression, the unknowns, the uncertainty of this season that we're in, not knowing what's going to happen next. Of course, the, uh, the, the political polarization that we're experiencing in our nation right now with an election coming up, it is a lot. And, and here's what it feels like. It, it feels insurmountable. So uh, the whole goal of this series that, that, that Doug talked about to me was he just wants to reinstill hope and faith and love into this difficult and this really vulnerable season. And here's what I love about your pastor. I want to brag on Pastor Doug for a minute because I've been around a lot of senior pastors in the last 20 years, a lot of senior pastors, and almost all of them have been dynamic and incredible and gifted and amazing and kind. But if there's one attribute that I've, I've noticed a lot of senior pastors often tend to struggle with, it's this thing called empathy, which is kind of crazy when you think about it because the ultimate goal of a pastor is to be a shepherd, right? And if there's one attribute of a shepherd that is so fundamental to doing it well, it's being an empathetic person. And Plum Creek, listen to me, you have such an empathetic pastor. I watched the last three series uh, sermons leading up to mine and just the tone and just the heart that came from Doug was just beautiful. And I, I just never wanna uh, not stop and take some time to celebrate and to honor the leader at Plum Creek Church. And so Doug, we love you and thank you for letting me speak into week four of insurmountable. And here's my goal, just so you guys know, I'm not going to solve all the biblical problems of how we approach seasons that seem insurmountable. I'm not good enough. I'm not smart enough. I'm not wise enough. And I definitely don't have enough time. But here's what I want to do. I want to give you what I think is one fundamentally important thought about what to do when you're in a season that feels overwhelming. One fundamental thought about what to do when you find yourself in a situation that honestly feels insurmountable. And so I'm going to do this. I'm just going to pray really fast that in these next few minutes, God would so bless my words and it would speak right into the situation you find yourself in right now. So Jesus, Holy Spirit, God, would you in these next few minutes we have together, would you illuminate my words, God? God, would you speak so powerfully, God, through this medium and this technology where I get to speak into the homes of so many people. Holy Spirit, would your presence just be honored and would it just be felt and would we be better afterwards than when we came in? Jesus, we pray this in your precious and your powerful name. Amen. So kind of if, if I'm being honest, the, the heart behind the message that I'm gonna give you, 
it really kind of started in me about eight years ago. And it started in marriage counseling. I'm sure all of you married people have perfect marriages and are amazing and everything's going great, but me and my wife are fallen, broken sinners. And so what we've said from the beginning of our marriage is we are going to prioritize not just getting counseling when everything's going awful, but even getting counseling when things are going good. We don't just wanna to go to the doctor for, for sick care, we wanna go for health care, right? For preventative maintenance. And so my wife was doing some counseling for about a year, eight years ago with her counselor. And it was intense. And, and about six months in, her counselor said, hey, I think for this next phase, we need to bring Chad in. And we need to work together on, on the marriage side of what, what you're working through. And so I was happy to do that, but I was a little nervous because I already had a rapport that I didn't have. And so I go in there a little bit naively. And in, in the very first session, she's just drilling me with questions. And I'm a communicator by nature, so I feel pretty comfortable. And whether I meant it or not, I can't even remember, but I'm, I'm trying to say all the right things, right? Because it's, it's my first day. And, and I'm talking, 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 talking. And at one point while I'm talking, she, I'm not kidding you, she gets up in the middle of me talking, doesn't say anything, and she walks about five feet in her office over to a whiteboard. And I don't know what to do, and I'm starting to be a little flustered, but she never told me to quit talking, so I just keep talking. And as I'm talking, she's not even looking at me, and she gets out a colored marker. And she starts to write on the whiteboard. And now I'm starting to get a little bit mad because I'm like, I'm pouring my heart out to you. Are you really whiteboarding me right now, lady? Right? And, and, and she just writes this in huge capital letters. She just writes the letter A. And then as I keep talking, she just writes the letter B. And I'm looking over at my wife and my wife can tell I'm getting flustered. And she's giving me like, the, just be calm. She knows what she's doing. And then she just writes the letter C. And I'm yapping away as, as I do. And then finally our counselor, she looks at me. She goes, hey, Chad, I, I'm, I love what you're saying and I love your heart. Do you mind if I stop you for a minute based on everything I'm hearing? I'm like, yeah, yeah, fine. Whiteboard me, go ahead, whatever. And underneath the letter A, she writes this. She writes problem, okay? And then under the letter C, she writes this. She writes solution. And I'm like, okay, where are you going with this? This feels a little condescending. You're ABCing me and I'm a grown man, but okay. And she said, Chad, we're here because humans have problems and, and people in marriage have problems. And, and guess what? Your wife, Rachel, don't say anything, Chad, but she has problems. And I'm just like, not, not, whatever, right? And she has problems. She goes, here's the deal. The way you're talking and, and the way you're probably wired, like a lot of men are wired, here's, here's what seems smart to you. When Rachel has a problem, you as a good husband want to go straight from A to C, which is solution, right? And she goes, Chad, I understand what you're thinking. You're thinking, hey, I, I, I got some ideas how to help you. Let me give you some solutions. But Chad, I want to submit to you very humbly that your wife is probably even smarter and wiser and more dynamic than you even fully understand, okay? And just like you, Chad, and she said it so nice, but I knew where she was going with this. She can solve more problems on her own than you think. And she says, so Chad, what if, what if for just a season you had permission to not go straight from A, the problem, to C, the solution, so we can just move on from the tension. What if you did B for just a season? And then she wrote under B, she wrote this. She wrote, feel it. And I'm a dude, so I'm like, well, feelings? What are, the, what are those, right? Like, no, we just want solutions. This is a stewardship issue, right? But she was saying this, listen, listen, she's smarter than you think. 
When she's coming to you with problems, most of the time what women want is they want you to sit in the middle of it and fill it with them. And, and she says this, what if, Chad, when you fill it with her, that's actually a huge component to the solution? Like that's the part you can best play in this problem being solved is you sitting there and, and you just filling it. You just being with her empathetically in solidarity. When women feel seen and known and heard, they are at their best. They are powerful. She's telling me all this, right? And, I, and, I, and I'm sitting here and, and I'm thinking to myself, fine, but, but why would you do that when you have a solution, right? And, and we got to think about this because we're all men and women alike. We are Americans, and we're Western-minded capitalists. And that is a beautiful thing. There is nothing wrong with that. But there is when it comes to this thing called empathy, right? Because when you have a problem, we, we get paid in America to have solutions, right? Because in a capitalistic society, time is money, is it not? Like time is money. And so the faster you can solve a solution, the more money you have an opportunity to make, right? The more margin you create for yourself. So this whole idea of just sitting in an issue and in a problem and in something that seems insurmountable and just spending time filling it, that, that, that seems ludicrous and backwards, right? But you got to understand this. This is the irony of the kingdom of God. Sitting empathetically in insurmountable seasons and situations, whether it's you or whether it's someone that you're sitting with, is so fundamental to the solution. Like it is so incredibly important, this thing called empathy in the kingdom of God. And so here's what I wanna do. I wanna give two quick illustrations in the scriptures to, to set a precedent that I'm telling you the truth. And so I wanna do this, I wanna start in the New Testament and we're gonna to go to uh, John chapter 11, verse 35. One verse, that's all I'm asking for you this week. And then when we're done with that, we're gonna to go to the Old Testament and we're gonna to go to a book there. And I wanna show you a precedent of empathy. I wanna show you the power of not just fixing things when they're difficult, but the power of filling things when they're difficult. In John chapter 11, there's a pretty famous story. If you've been going to church very long, you've definitely heard of it before. In John chapter 11, uh, one of Jesus's closest families and friends has just passed away. You read plenty in the gospels about two ladies named Mary and Martha and their sisters. And Jesus is incredibly close to these ladies. You can tell throughout the narrative. And they have a brother who Jesus is super close to. In fact, in this story, it says, Jesus, the one you love has died and his name is Lazarus and he's their brother. And we don't know why, but for whatever reason, Lazarus has died and Jesus isn't in town with them because when he was, usually he was staying with them. And so Mary and Martha, you can't imagine the grief they're in, but in their grief, they say, hey, we, we know the only solution to this is Jesus because we've literally watched him raise people from the dead. So can you quickly go and get Jesus? And so they send someone in the midst of their incredible grief and mourning to go and tell Jesus, hey, Lazarus has died. You got to come quick. And the Bible tells us by the time the messenger gets there, Lazarus has now been dead for two days. And Jesus looks when they tell him, Lazarus, your friend, the one you love has died. He looks at him and he says this. Now I'm, I'm paraphrasing, but this is exactly what he says. He says, I tell you the truth, this will not end in death. Now Plum Creek, can we, can we all agree that when, whenever Jesus says something, it's instantly by default of his divinity, a promise, right? 
So Jesus looks at them and he says, I tell you the truth, this will not end in death. This has happened so that the Son of Man can be glorified, so that the world can see his glory when he raises Lazarus from the dead. Uh, Pastor Doug talked about that, I think, two weeks ago with the Gideon story. And one of the most important points he made was that in insurmountable seasons, although we don't like them and we wouldn't wish them on anyone, that is when God does some of his absolutely most profoundly beautiful work for not just you, but for his glory. And so Jesus is like, yeah, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to raise him from the dead and, and it's going to be for my glory. And so Jesus does something that was offensive on the surface to Mary and to Martha and to all their friends. Jesus waits two more days before he shows up. Now, here's what's interesting. In the Jewish culture, they have belief that for the first 72 hours after someone, quote unquote, passes away, their spirit hasn't left their body yet. So they had this tradition, especially in ancient Hebraic times, where for 72 hours, they wouldn't do anything with the body. And they would weep and they would pray and they would mourn and they would petition the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob to possibly do a miracle. And then they knew from biology that on day four, that spirit was gone because something called decomposition was happening and you could start to smell the fact that that person was dead. And Jesus takes two days to show up knowing that he would be fully dead. And when Jesus gets there, Lazarus has already been placed in the tomb. They've already put all the burial clothes on him and put all the spices and done all the ceremonial stuff. And it is, in their minds, too late. You wanna talk about insurmountable. And when Jesus gets there, Mary has a, a word with him and Martha has a word with him and they are hurt and they are confused and they are having so much trouble understanding why Jesus would take his sweet old time when one of his best friends on planet earth has died. Like, couldn't you come right away? Because now we've buried him. It's day four, Jesus. You know what that means. His spirit is gone. And Jesus says, take me to the body. And because it's day four, the people in that culture were, were, were sitting there with Mary and Martha. A bunch of people had come to do what we call sitting Shiva. That's this ancient a death ritual where friends and family members in seven days and seven nights would all take turns sitting with the people who were in the depths of despair because of their loss. And so Mary and Martha had all these friends here in this moment when Jesus shows up and they were sitting in solidarity, right? Empathy. They were mourning together, grieving together, sitting there quietly. Jesus shows up and says, take me to the body. And it says this in the, in the Bible, and you can go back and read the story. It says, when Jesus got there, and he saw how devastated everyone was. And he saw the people crying. And he saw how broken Mary and Martha were. It says this, and this is a famous verse. It's John chapter 11, verse 35. It's the first verse I ever memorized. And it wasn't because I'm godly. It's because it's only two words. So you ready to memorize a verse at church today? Here it is. It says this in John eleven thirty-five. 35. This is one of the most important phrases in all of the Bible, I promise you. It says, Jesus wept. Now, I, I, for, for, for a Bible class, I had to memorize 500 verses in nine months. And I'm not kidding you when I told you that was the first verse I memorized. And the only reason I did it was because I'm not that smart and I needed a short verse to memorize. But, but 20 some years later, can I tell you how beautiful and how important that verse is to me? 
It's one of my all-time favorite verses in all of the Bible because it is so pregnant, Plum Creek, with implication. Think about it. Jesus already promised that he would raise Lazarus from the dead. And we have 2,000 years of retrospect. You heard Doug say uh, a few weeks ago, um, uh, hindsight's 2020, right? Like we already know the end of this story. Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead. Why in the world would Jesus show up and take all of this time when he's already been a day or two late, take all this time sitting there crying when he knows he's about to do the coolest thing on planet earth. He's about to give the miracle of resurrection. Why would you want to wait on that? Why would you want to sit there in everybody's pain in this seemingly insurmountable situation and add to it, God, with your tears? Unless, hear this Plum Creek, unless those tears are as significant to the resurrection as the actual miracle is. What if Jesus's empathy in that moment is going to, for the long term, do more for Mary and Martha and Lazarus and everyone that was there than maybe even the actual resurrection? Here's what I mean. The resurrection for, for days and weeks and months and maybe even a year or two after would have been the highlight. It would have been the talk of the town. It would have been the fuel with which their souls re-upped on their faith in God, right? Through Jesus. But I guarantee you, as time went on, do you know what got less and less precious to them? The miracle of resurrection. And do you know what got more and more precious to them? I can't prove it, but I guarantee you what got more and more precious to them over time was, do you remember that before Jesus did what he could so easily do, which was just speak a word and raise Lazarus from the dead? Do you realize he just sat with us and cried for a while? Like, think about this, Plum Creek. Jesus is so fundamentally different than every other false God that this world has ever put their hope in. Because if you study all of the other false gods that have ever been in existence on planet earth, they have one thing in common for all their differences. And it's this, they're highly transactional gods. It's you do this for me, I'll do this for you, right? You work through this system and I'll do this for you. It's a quid pro quo. That's what all the gods have in common is they're super transactional. But not our God, not the God, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. You know what they are? They're highly relational. Jesus, if he was just another transactional God, here's what he does. He gets off of his throne, he comes down to earth, and in three days, he solves the problem, right? He comes down, he says, put me on a cross because I got to shed innocent and sinless blood for the sins of humanity. So just quick, let's do this. Put me on a cross. He sits in the grave on Saturday and then he's gloriously resurrected on Sunday. And on Monday, he ascends back to heaven. Problem solved. He's back on his throne in perfect shalom, right? If we served a transactional God, he just comes down here and in three and a half days, he solves the problem. But do you know what God chooses to do? And this is not arbitrarily. He chooses to sit with us. Think about this. Sit with us in our human mess called sin for 33 years. He solves it in three days. Again, God does nothing arbitrarily. So we are being shown something about the power of empathy 
Jesus didn't just want to come down and transactionally fix things for us so we could get back to a quid pro quo relationship. Jesus came down here to be a baby and to be a preteen and to be a teenager and to go through those young men years and to work a hard uh, uh, but honorable blue collar job and to, to know what it was like to be a son and know what it was like to, to be a brother and know what it was like to be a friend. And he sat with person after person after person so that he could let us know for 33 years, I know what it's like to be you. Plum Creek, here's what I'm getting at. There is something so powerful when seasons seem insurmountable about simply just sitting in something. And again, I know it feels like poor stewardship and I know all we ever want is solutions. It's like, I don't like the season I'm in. God, help me get out of this. But listen to me, God's timetable for getting us out of anything in any season of life is almost always slower than we would draw it up if we were God. God's ways are not our ways. God's thoughts are not our thoughts. Can I add this? Just, just trust me here. God's timetable is never our timetable. Some of the most powerful intimate, important growth you and I will ever have as believers are in those seasons that are very vulnerable where things feel insurmountable and God doesn't solve it right away. But instead, he says this to us. No, 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 no. I have promises for you, but I want to sit in this for a minute because I need you to know that I know what it's like to be you. Like that's, that's what, what, what God's saying. Like, here's the deal with Lazarus. You know he died again, right, at some point? We don't know when, history doesn't record it, but he died again, and he didn't get raised from the dead again. But do you know how precious it had to be for that family that Jesus sat Shiva with them and just wept when he saw what it's like to be a human going through horrible situations? And Plum Creek, listen to me, he does the same thing with you and I. You go to the Old Testament, and the very first book I ever read as a new believer was this, this book called Job. And, and, and the, if I'm being honest, the reason I read it was because I had just become a new believer. I had been taught my whole life because I grew up in the church, even though I strayed away, that the Bible has answers for everything and can help you with everything. And I was unemployed when I was a new believer. And I opened the book and I saw the book called Job. And I'm like, I need a job. And so I'm going to read a whole book dedicated to having a job. Little did I know it was the book Job. Now I know. But listen to me, if you're a new believer, do not start in the book of Job because it is, the, it is the absolute essence of what it looks like to be in a situation that is insurmountable. It's like worst case scenario possible, okay? If, if, if you look up insurmountable in the, in the dictionary, like Job's picture better be there, his senior picture, like, like this guy, like insurmountable. He loses all of his children in a tragedy. He loses all of his livestock in another tragedy. He loses all of his income. He was one of the wealthiest men on planet earth. The Bible called him at the time, the righteousest man, the most righteous man on planet earth, right? And, and in God's sovereign hand, he allows an incredibly insurmountable season for Job. And for the first seven days, his friends show up in the midst of the most hellish situation in life. And do you know what they do with him? They sit Shiva. In fact, they, they, in the ancient world, they would even go as far as to do this, and, and they do this in the book of Job. They would sit in the dust with him for seven days, mostly silent. 
Why? From the dust you were formed to the dust you will return. So this was like this, this metaphor, this way for them to cope with insurmountable things. They sat with him in the dust for seven days. They didn't just do that though, they shaved his head. And then they shaved their heads to go, have you ever seen, okay, I'm not proud of this, but in 2020, because it's 2020, I've spent more time watching useless, like crazy videos on YouTube and Facebook than I should. Don't act like you haven't, but I, I have. And I am a sucker for two types of videos on YouTube. I, I can't watch enough of them. One is when a soldier comes home and surprises his family. Every time I just lose it. When he, you know, he, he walks into the elementary school and his daughter sees him while she's eating lunch and she just sprints to him crying. Come on, we've all seen it. Like, oh, here's the second one though. It's, it's when like a, a kid has cancer or a high school kid. I saw one recently where a girl who's in a senior in high school has cancer and she was losing all of her hair. And come on ladies, it's your hair. You don't talk about feeling naked and feeling vulnerable and feeling insecure. It, the Bible calls that your crown, right? Like, like she shaved her head and this senior boy, they filmed him going to ask her to prom. And before he went to film and ask her to prom, he shaved his head. I'm, I'm like bawling watching it because I'm, I'm a sucker for this. Why? Because there's something so divine and beautiful about empathy from God to us and from us to each other, right? There's something so beautiful and divine about it. And this is what Job's friends do for seven days. They sit in the dust with shaved heads because naked we came and naked we will go back, right? It's this beautiful symbolism in the midst of the grieving. Now here's what happens after day seven. Here's where humans go super sideways. We always tend to do this. As soon as the seventh day is up of their grieving, they go into, hey, let's solve this. They did such a good job. Everything was going so beautifully when they were just sitting there filling it with Job. But now they're like, okay, now we got to solve it. Whose fault was this? And everyone's blame shifting. And if you read the next 40 some chapters, his friends are all giving their theological conspiracy theories about whose fault it was. Was it Job's? What, what was God? The devil? Was there something else? Because they believed in the Jewish culture that if something bad happened to a Jewish person, they had some kind of like secret sin or something. They were cursed, right? In fact, there's this one moment in the beginning where they're all trying to decide and Job's wife, she's so distraught, as you can imagine, and she's so hurt, she literally looks at Job and says, Job, just curse God and die. Talk about needing to be whiteboarded in marriage counseling, right? Like, I hear her saying it like this. She's a smoker. Job, curse God and die. Like, right? And I don't know why she's from Jersey and smokes, but that, that's how I hear her. She's just scorned. She's bitter. She's hurt. And clearly, it's, we can't blame it on God, so it, it's got to be you that all this bad stuff happened, right? And they're all starting to try and solve an unsolvable, overwhelming, insurmountable situation. And as soon as they start doing that for 40 some chapters, it just goes sideways until God has to step in and have a tough conversation with them. But they were at their best, Plum Creek, when they were just filling it. Not fixing it, filling it. And if in this season, I could just ask one thing when 2020 is 2020-ing us all. It's what if we just said, God, I wanna be a person who's not as consumed with certainty 
and having to know what you're up to and what all's going on and how it's all gonna get fixed and how it's all gonna play out. I don't wanna spend any more time with my theories about what's going on on planet Earth and who's at fault and who's responsible and how we're gonna fix it. God, I wanna spend these days just filling it. Okay, God, what am I supposed to learn in this? Not why is this happening, God, but what do you want me to learn in this? And God, will you sit with me through this? And then not just, God, will you sit with me through this, but God, will you give me some more people that I can sit in solidarity with? Because in this season of 2020, there is such a small amount of certainty. If you're looking for certainty, listen to me, that is out of your control. But you know what is always in your control? Solidarity. Empathy. You can control that. You can participate in that as much as you want. Listen, what if in this season, your biggest prayer and my biggest prayer was just this, Emmanuel. God, would you just be with us? When we weep, could you somehow let us know you're weeping? Just like you did with Lazarus and Mary and Martha. Jesus, in 2020, would you sit Shiva with me and just fill the fills with me? Can I, can I, can I have that? Because listen to me, there's way more in the solution of this insurmountable season. There's way more to this empathy thing than you think. This like, like sitting in it. And instead of spending this futile energy fixing it and solving in it, you just ask God, okay, what? What's this for, God? What, what are you up to? I'm trusting you're good. What are you up to? God, I'm here. I'm filling a bunch of the fills. Would you fill them with me? God, I'm, I'm available for you to, to, to just be with me. Would you be with me? And, and listen to me. This is why he spent 33 and a half years sitting in it before he spent three days solving it. To send us the message, I am Emmanuel. I am the God with you. Even though you walk through the valley of the shadow of death, you don't have to fear any evil for I am with you. So we're gonna do this, Plum Creek. We're about to worship. We're about to sing a beautiful song called available. And, and that can have so many different meanings for so many different people, depending on where you're at in life right now. But the one thing I'm asking and pleading for us to be available for is just for the Holy Spirit and God and, and Jesus to just sit with us in this season in solidarity. Because there is such power. And it's not just power to get us through 2020. When, when you go through hellish seasons and you look back in retrospect and you know that God was with you and that God was good, it gives you so much growth and maturity and depth for the future. Listen to me, Plum Creek. God is up to something right now in this crazy insurmountable season. You don't have to fear. You do not have to be afraid, but you do have to invite Emmanuel into the situation and listen to me. He will weep with you. He will laugh with you. He will sit silent with you. He will speak into your life when invited. Whatever you need, he just wants to be with you because he's not the God of the transaction. He's the God of relationship. Let's worship.